The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. This morning we're answering the question, why does a good and powerful God, all-powerful God, allow evil and suffering to exist? And if you'd like to look at the previous nine questions, we looked at things with how can we trust the Bible, why are there so many denominations, why can't the church be united, how do I know the will of God? They're all on our website. You can go there, click on the sermons, all the PowerPoints there, the messages are there. You can catch up anytime you would desire. Well, with our kids coming back uh, next week from school, we go back to the 815 service. We'd love to have some of you join us there. And also, it's an opportunity for you to serve in our children's ministries. We have great opportunities for you to minister to our kids. As you know, we're in the midst of exciting chaos. Uh, We've got kids in the room or in the uh, building back there. Thornton is changing buildings. We'll be changing with them. Our adults will be meeting across the street. And you saw construction fences up. They begin remodeling this week. So lots happening. Be patient with us. And uh, let's just trust God to take us uh, deeper than we've ever been before as we adjust to all these things tonight. Come and celebrate with us. We have about 20 folks getting baptized. If you're getting baptized or one of your young people getting baptized, would you stand so we can see who you might be recognized out there? Anybody here this hour? There we go. There we go. Some of our guys there back over there. Blessing. Back over here. Super. We are going to celebrate God's goodness. Then we're going to do something we hadn't done before. We're going to have a potluck dessert. I'll let you guess whose idea that was. And uh, we just want to enjoy time as a body. We want some community. And uh, so bring a dessert to share. And uh, we'll enjoy being together and celebrating God's goodness and drawing people to Jesus. How can a good, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering? Dissertations have been written on this. Books have been written on this. I've got 35 minutes to answer the question. So we need to pray. <laughs> Lord, we, we, we love you. And uh, we're grateful. We're grateful that uh, in your sovereignty, in your omnibenevolence, in your omnipotence, which we don't fully understand everything there is to understand about you. But we come to you because you are a good God. And because you're a powerful God. So, Lord, would you uh, use this time to teach us in the name of Jesus? Amen. I understand suffering. I understand suffering. I'm a Texas Ranger, Dallas Cowboy fan. I understand suffering. Could be worse. I could be an Aggie, a Longhorn, a Red Raider, a Baylor Bear, a Houston Cougar. You guys really know suffering, okay? And if I didn't insult you, raise your hand, I'll call out your school, okay? So, I mean... uh, Some of us really know suffering, suffering. The child dies, the cancer kills, the surgery fails, the addiction continues, the divorce is final, the test is positive, the coma turns fatal. Suffering. Suffering, even when you don't do anything wrong. Suffering, just ask the faithful couple whose cribs are empty and bare and womb is barren. Suffering, the businessman has done everything right, but he still loses his job. The student who stands up for truth and is mocked. The spouse who gives it one more chance only to be betrayed by an unfaithful spouse once more, suffering. Our dear friends Dan and Lindy Bacon, one of the longest supported missionary couples in TBC, we've been supporting them for over 40 years, even before Bev and I came here. Uh, dear friends, we, he was the U.S. Director of OMF, a board I was privileged to serve on in Denver for 15 years. When Dan and Lindy retired uh, from uh, their duties in Denver, they moved to Connecticut to be close to their two grandchildren. They were enjoying time with their grandkids. They'd been there about five months, and uh, their youngest granddaughter, Charlotte, age six, went to school that morning, Sandy Hook Elementary. Never came back. Suffering. 
That is so painful to think about. Bev and I went and ministered to them about six months after we stood over her grave, wept with them, looked at the graves of about 10 or 15 of these young people. Can you imagine the pain and agony of sending your kindergartner to school never to come home? So if you've experienced the death of a child, you know what we're talking about. As we wept with Dan and Lindy, it was one of the most painful things we've been through to watch them suffer. Suffering. We see it all around us. We see cars driving to people yesterday. And by the way, there's no place for that in our world. There's no place for that. I mean, racism in the body of Christ, the agony in the body of... I mean, there's no place for that. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. We see cars driving to people in London. We see it happen in Charlottesville yesterday. We see planes fly into buildings. We see uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis take thousands of lives. We see drunk drivers maim and kill innocent victims. We see kids who are sexually abused, young women who are trafficked and become sex slaves. How can a good, all-powerful God allow these things to exist? That's the question before us this morning. Some of you think, wow, what an exciting day to be at Temple Bible Church. (laughs) But really, if we can't answer those questions as faithful followers of our Father and our Savior and the Spirit that lives within us, I think we're in trouble. Because I think this question is the one that often derails more folks than any of the questions we've looked at this summer. I think there are more folks who personalize this and says, because of something that they've personally experienced, if God is good and he's all-powerful, why was I raped on a date? If God is good and all-powerful, why was my child abused? If God is good and all-powerful, why was I duped by a spouse? If God is good and all-powerful, why was I scammed by a business partner? It goes on and on and on. And I'm convinced when it comes to understanding God, and when it comes to looking at the evil around us and the suffering around us, this has derailed more people than any of the questions we've looked at because it becomes very personal in our lives. So the question before us is, how can a good, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering. And the way I'd like to begin is talking about the struggle of skeptics. You may be here as a skeptic this morning. You came at the bequest of a friend or maybe a spouse, and you're saying, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff. And so I just want to challenge you that you have a struggle like we have a struggle. You've got to answer the question, well, what if there is no God? Because the conclusion of many skeptics is that, that there is no God. So the skeptic struggle is how do you live in a world without God? I mean, we're saying, or I'm saying, that there is a God. He is all-powerful. He is omnibenevolent, meaning he's all good. So if God is all-powerful and all good, then I've got to answer some questions. But if you're out there, or there are many people in our world out there that say, well, that's not the case. So their struggle is, how do you live in a world without God? Because if you live in a world without God, there are a few things we have to talk about. Now, about 40 years ago, a guy named Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And he used a commonly held syllogism. A syllogism is a conclusion based upon logical arguments or propositions asserted or assumed to be true. And and this is a centuries-old syllogism. So he comes up with two propositions and a conclusion, if you will. The argument goes like this. A good God would want to eliminate evil and suffering. So if God's good, he would want to eliminate evil and suffering. And then the second proposition is an all-powerful God would be able to eliminate evil and suffering. So you see what he's saying there? He's saying if God is truly good, he would want to eliminate evil and suffering. He's all powerful. He's able to eliminate evil and suffering, but evil and suffering still exist. And so his conclusions in his book, and this has been the argument of many skeptics for many centuries, is this. God is willing to eliminate evil and suffering 
but he's not able. So he's impotent or not powerful. I mean, if God is indeed all powerful, he would be willing to eliminate evil and suffering, but he mustn't be able because it still exists. Or secondly, God is able to eliminate evil and suffering, but he's not willing. And a God who's not willing, but able to eliminate evil and suffering is not a good God. And so the conclusion is, therefore, an all-powerful and good God does not exist. Now, some would say God exists, but he's not all-powerful, he's not all-good. Others would say there is no God, period. And and they look at the circumstances around them and say, how can this happen? How how can this take place if God is all-powerful and God is all-good? And so that's what we're faced with today. Is God impotent or is he all-powerful? Is he good or does he just turn his head and cluck his tongue when he sees the evil in our world? And that becomes a battle. So I would ask the skeptic and just remind him they've got an issue too. If there is no God, then there is no justice. If there is no God, there is no justice. The book of Ecclesiastes deals with this issue. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, has a section in his book in the third chapter where he talks about what would happen in a world if God did not exist, what would take place in this world. And there's some devastating conclusions. Conclusion number one, without God, there is no justice. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, Solomon writing about this says, I saw everything under the sun. So he's not looking beyond the sun, he's looking under the sun. He says, when I look under the sun, in the place of judgment, there is wickedness. In the place of justice, there is wickedness. He's saying, if there is no God, there is no justice. There's no judgment. None of these things exist. If there is no God, then wickedness dominates. Wickedness is always there and always will be there. There was a school shooting in England about six years ago. There were about 12 kids, I think, that were murdered in that school. After that shooting, one parent said it's sad that the shooter took his own life because now justice cannot be served. Let me repeat that. The parent said it's sad that the shooter took his life because now justice cannot be served. If there is no God, that statement is true. If there is no God, justice will never be served. But if there is a God, one day justice will be served. In fact, the next verse in Ecclesiastes says this, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. If there is no God, there is no justice or judgment. If there is a God, there is justice and judgment. So the skeptic has to answer a very difficult question, and that is, you're calling for justice and you're calling for judgment, but if there's no God, it's not going to exist. He doesn't exist and that doesn't exist, but if there is a God... One day the scriptures tell us he'll make all things right. One day the scriptures tell us that he has circled on his calendar a time of judgment. That's found in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. It says he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's the man he's appointed? Jesus, the one who has been risen from the dead. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so what we see in these verses is that God is a just judge, and one day he will destroy evil and suffering. In fact, that date, according to Acts chapter 17, is circled on heaven's calendar. One day, judgment will take place. One day, justice will be meted out. The problem with us is we want justice. Go ahead and say it. We want justice now. I mean, that's the reality of it. We want people that drive cars and the people to be that justice and justice should be served. And we want justice when something happens, sex, slavery, you pick the poison, whatever it is. We want justice right now. 
even vigil, vigilante justice if we want. I, I mean, we celebrate vigilante justice sometimes, don't we? In Augusta, Georgia in uh, 2010, there was a group of U.S. reservists standing outside of Best Buy. It, it was uh, Christmas time. They were collecting toys for Toys for Top. There was a young man inside the store. Surveillance cameras uh, showed that he was putting a laptop under his jacket. He was confronted by the store manager, became irate, knocked down an employee, pulled a knife out, ran towards the door with the computer under his garments. The Marines saw what was happening outside the Best Buy. And so they tried to stop the man. He, pulled, he took the knife and stabbed one of the men in an arm. It was just a surface cut. The suspect, whose name was not released, was held until police arrived. The suspect was immediately transported to the local hospital with two broken arms, a broken leg, possible broken ribs, multiple contusions, assorted lacerations, including a broken nose and jaw, injuries he, sust- injuries he sustained when he fell trying to run away from the Marines. <laughs> and we love that. Why? Because we want justice now. We do, don't we? And here's what I'm going to tell you, my friends. God's justice may not be immediate but it is inevitable. It may not be immediate, but it is inevitable. One day Jesus, who's been risen, who rose from the dead, which gives him all the right and authority to judge and execute justice, will return for that purpose. One author writes this, on this topic, scriptures make no apology and pull no punches. The day of judgment and justice is coming. It's not a phrase in a fictional novel, but it's a day circled on heaven's calendar. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, only two postcard-sized epistles, Philemon and 3 John, fail to reference our divine court appearance. While the details of that day are debated by us, we know this. The day is coming. On that day, earthly wealth will not matter. Physical beauty will not matter. Fame will be forgotten. You may be standing positioned next to Napoleon or Julius Caesar or Elvis. But you won't ask them a question about Waterloo or Brutus, but I guarantee you, you will be all shook up. (laughs) There's a day, there's a day, not now, but there's a day when all things will be set right. And it's not today. God's judgment may not be immediate, but it is inevitable. And so if I were you today, and I I did not know Christ as Savior, I would fear him as judge. In fact, I'll go this far. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, I would not get my car and drive out of that parking lot. I would not risk my life because one day you'll have to stand before the judge. But let me flip that. You don't have to fear him as judge if you know him as Savior. Amen? Amen. You don't have to fear him as judge if you know him as Savior. And so if you know him as Savior, you don't have to walk in fear. But if you don't know him as Savior... I wouldn't drive out of that parking lot today and risk getting squashed like a bug on a windshield and be cast into Christless eternity when you stand before him as judge. And so I beg you to consider Jesus, the one who gave his life, the one we sang about in all these songs who shed his blood on your behalf. Justice, to know him as savior, we don't have to fear him as judge. So without God, there is no justice. Without God, there's no future. Without God, there's no future. In fact, when Solomon writes about this, writing from an under-the-sun view that there is no God, he says, all go to the same place. All come from dust to dust they return. I mean, if there is no God, when we die, uh, we become petroleum for whoever, Exxon, Shell, British Petroleum, Sefco, Sam's, wherever you buy your gas. I mean, that's what you become at that point in time. If there is no God, death is the end, end of all hope, and death wins. Death wins. 
But here's the good news, my friends. The good news is Jesus in his resurrection proved to us that death is not the end, but it's the beginning. In fact, Jesus says this when he comes to the grave of Lazarus. He speaks to the sisters of Lazarus, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die. Hey, I mean, that's the point. D.L. Moody, great preacher of the early 1800s, wrote this. Someday you'll read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall have only gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement, this tent, into a house that's immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious likeness. I was born of the flesh in 1837, born of the spirit in 1856, that which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. And you should say glory, hallelujah. See, we don't have to worry about if there's a future, there is a future because the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is true, then one day we'll spend eternity in the presence of the Savior. But one, one day we know where we'll be if we know Christ as our Savior. And the, the great joy of that, the great joy of that is that we know that there is a certain future for all of us in the arms of Christ. And as, as I look at this, death is impressive. If you look at the statistics on death, they're pretty impressive, aren't they? One out of every one of us. I mean, it's pretty impressive. I, I, you, you will not escape the clutches of death, but you can escape the consequences of death. You're not going to escape death's clutches, but you can escape the consequences if you know Christ as Savior. So without a God, there is no justice. Without a God, there is no future. Without a God, there's no significance to human life. I mean, human life really has no significance. We're no different than the animal world. I love to watch Discovery Channel, National Geographic. I, I, I love watching animals, and we've had the privilege to be in Africa and watch this, but, you know, live sometimes. And I, I, get, I get really fascinated by lions as they stalk their prey. That may be a bit sadistic, but I, I enjoy watching that. How many of you can be honest? You enjoy watching that too? Yeah, there you go. We're all sadistic together. But, but as I watch that, I recognize, you know what? If, if there is no difference between us and the animal world, we're just like a gazelle that gets up and runs for its life every morning. And if somebody chomps on us, they chomp on us. What difference does it make? But the great news is this. If you were with us at the beginning of last year, we spent 12 weeks on a, on a series I called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And in Genesis chapter, or Ecclesiastes, he says, for humans, God tests them so they may see they are like the animals. But we are not totally like the animals. We're different because of the Imago Dei. God said, let us make man Imago Dei in our image, in our likeness. The Imago Dei sets us apart from all other parts of God's creation. We have a soul, we have a spirit, we have moral responsibility, we make decisions. We had a little schnauzer for all, for 14, 15, 16 years, I forget how long. Cuddles was a great little dog. I was the big old guy with a little dog on a leash walking around town. Cuddles heard hundreds of conversations about Jesus. Cuddles heard hundreds of conversations from the scriptures in our home, but Cuddles could not accept Christ as her savior. Maybe she did once, I don't know. She's different. She, she, she was an animal. Doesn't mean you mistreat animals, you love animals. Doesn't mean you're, you're mean to animals, you love animals. But, but they're different. We are creating the Imago Dei, and therefore we have significance. By the way, let me tease this out based on what happened yesterday. As I was watching the news unfold in Charlottesville, Virginia, I had already prepared this message. I, I was thinking, you know, 
in the body of Christ, because of the Imago Dei, all of humanity, regardless of race, color, gender, education, socioeconomic background, religious preference, no one is superior, no one is inferior in the body of Christ or in all of humanity. It's a tragedy when we see stuff like that. And so the reality of it is the Imago Dei means we respect life in the womb, we respect life out of the womb, we respect life at the end of life. And it's because of this verse right here, because we are all, every person that walks on this planet is made in the Imago Dei. We have the responsibility, according to that verse, to rule over which none of the animal world has. Without God, there's no future, there's no justice, no future, no significance to human life. So that's the skeptic's dilemma. If you don't believe there's a God and you're a skeptic, you've got to answer those questions. You've got to, you've got to do something with that. I mean, that's the reality. So Pastor Gary, answer the question. Why does an all-powerful, omnibenevolent God allow evil and suffering to exist? Well, let me give you three things that I see from the scriptures. Number one, God has a morally adequate but not yet fully revealed reason for allowing evil and suffering. My first answer is, I don't like that answer. I mean, you're not really telling us anything. You, you, what you're saying there, Pastor Gary, is you don't fully understand what God's doing. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't fully understand what God's doing. I, I recognize evil and suffering exists, and I'll talk about how God uses that. I'll talk about the outcomes of those things. But if anybody tells you they fully understand the mind of God, you run from that person. Now, you, you just run from them. I mean, this is going to come as a shock to some of you. You cannot comprehend everything about who God is and what he does. Not going to happen. Finite man cannot understand infinite God. We have limited comprehension. Some of you don't think you do, but you do. Nothing worse. The only thing worse than an expert is a person who thinks he's an expert on everything. You know that guy? I mean, I like what Will Rogers said a long time ago. Everyone is ignorant just on different subjects. And he's right. We have limited comprehension. In fact, that comprehension is not going to come fully until fully known until we in the presence of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face with him. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And he's saying, not until we're in the presence of Christ, face to face with the Godhead, that we will fully understand everything that happened here. And so that's the reality of what takes place. God has a morally adequate reason for allowing sin and suffering and evil to exist, but we cannot fully comprehend that. But I want to tell you this, God is good and God is righteous and God is all-powerful. Abraham puts it this way, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Won't the judge of all the earth do what's right? And then the psalmist puts it this way, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The very foundation of what holds God up are, are, are those two words, righteousness and justice. And love and faithfulness go before you. He's an omnibenevolent, that is, all good God. He is, uh, he is, he is, he is also an all-powerful God. Those things do exist alongside, that's his nature, they exist alongside evil and suffering in our world. That's the reality of what we live. Because of the fall, all things have changed. So I conclude that the sovereign ruler of the universe allows evil and suffering to exist, and he's still both good and powerful. Secondly, God's sovereignty and glory will be displayed by his ultimate destruction of evil. 
If you want to know the ultimate outcome of the entire story, you got to read the end of the book. And God's sovereignty and God's glory will be displayed by his ultimate destruction of evil. Who is the victor? Who is the victor? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the resurrection chapter. And in chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, very familiar words that you will recognize. The apostle Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is resurrected. Because Christ is alive today. The, the, the outcome is he is the victor. And if he is the victor, then God's sovereignty and God's glory will be displayed by his ultimate destruction of evil. One day, evil, suffering, sin, and everything associated with it will be gone. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth, passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, and, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the order of these things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne, that's Jesus says, I am making everything new. Write it down. These words are trustworthy and true. One day, the ultimate victory. See, Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. Satan's on a short leash right now, but he's going to ultimately destroy everything that is evil, every suffering that comes about. It'll no longer be anything. And the victor, the victor and his victory will be quite obvious. And it should be to us now. And so what we see here, what we see here is a future in eternity. I've been reading a lot about eternity lately. It's been near, I mean, obviously near and dear in my mind. When we go on a trip, I, I'm a planner. Bev can tell you I'm a planner. I, I, I get books about the city or the country we're gone to, and I, I, I make the reservations, and uh, I, I talk to folks who've been there, and I like to know about the places where we're gone. Now, if you've been here a while, you know I'm OCD, and so that's not a surprise to you, is it? In fact, Bev says there's medicine for that. I don't need to go into... <laughs> Bev's preparation? What's your preparation, babe? Get your suitcase out and ask how the weather's going to be. <laughs> that's about it. She doesn't like to plan. You know, when you have metastatic liver cancer, there's a good chance you're going to be eternity in a short matter of time. I'm a planner, so I'm reading about eternity. I've read books about heaven. I've read articles about heaven. Haven't met anybody who's been there yet. But if you made it there, come talk to me. I want to hear about it. But here's the reality. Studying about heaven, reading about heaven, praying about heaven has brought me more peace and more joy in the past months than ever before. And when you begin to look at your Savior and who he is and what he's done and what awaits us, that's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because one day you'll be in the presence of Jesus. I told you my favorite mug that I've ever seen, coffee mug. What makes grandpa's house special is grandpa. What makes heaven special? Not about us. I get a lot of people that say, well, we'll recognize one of them. Well, I know my wife. Well, I know, that will my dog be there? Well, I mean, all kinds of questions about heaven. Well, we know what's happening on earth. Well, we see what's happening. I, I can't answer all those questions. I am going to do a series, or we, the teaching team, do a series on eternity in the month of November. 
And uh, they're doing that because I want to study it more. I want to know more. And so we're going we're gonna to present you with a series on eternity every single week in November. But here's the reality. The more I've studied about it, the more I've looked at it, I've begun to long for it. Now, I don't have a death wish, but I can tell you that moment when we come face to face with Jesus will be the most unbelievable moment that we've ever experienced. And we won't be dancing in his presence. We won't be running up to him. We'll be on our face, worshiping him, hands raised, giving him glory. Amen? Get that picture in your mind, face to face with him. So if there is a God and he is all powerful and he is good, he has a morally adequate reason for allowing sin and suffering to exist. And ultimately, God's sovereignty and glory will bring about the destruction of evil. Finally, God allows sin and suffer, evil and suffering because of the greater good that results from it. Well, Pastor Gary, what are you talking about? What's the greater good? Let's start with the greatest good. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, without suffering, there is no salvation. Without suffering, there is no salvation. The songs we sang had to do with the blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus and the communion we took had to do with the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Without his suffering, there is no salvation. So when we think about us suffering and the trials we go through, recognize our Savior bore all of that for us first. He suffered. Isaiah 53, write it down, take a look at it. He suffered for our iniquities. Jesus was on that cross for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for my sin. That's our Savior. And so he allows evil and suffering because of the greatest good, and that's salvation. Also, the greater good. The greater good are things like being refined, being made holy, being drawn closer into his presence, coming to the altar and throwing ourselves before him. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts to us, in our pain. And he's right. Well, let me personalize this. You say, Pastor Gary, I'm, I'm the one that was date raped. I'm the one that was engaged and my fiance took off without even me knowing why. I, I'm the one that got hit by a car driven by a drunk driver. I, I'm the one who faithfully parented and now I've got prodigals. I, I, I'm the one who was faithful to my business partner, but they scammed me. I was the one that loved my husband, my wife, but they were taken in a heart blink into glory. So why does God allow that stuff? Let me personalize your suffering. Let's talk about your personal suffering, things you have been through. First of all, it's a theology of suffering, four points. Suffering can be, but is not necessarily the result of sin or God's judgment. Suffering can be, but is not necessarily the result of sin or God's judgment. I, I mean, you, you look at Job, nobody sinned. There's a blind man in John chapter 9. Disciples look at him and say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his father? And Jesus said, neither. He's this way so that God might be glorified. And so suffering can be, but it's not necessarily the result of sin. Now, there's no doubt sin can produce suffering. The sin of a drunk driver maiming or destroying a life produces suffering. A shooter goes in a Sandy Hook elementary school produces great suffering. Some idiot driving through a crowd yesterday produces suffering. The sin of excess bluebell produces suffering when you can't button your pants or bend over and tie your shoes. <laughs> Present company excluded. We can experience joy and suffering or joy and peace in the midst of suffering. One of the things that Bev and I have been praying is that 
as, as we work through the things that God has allowed to come into our life, I don't think God caused cancer, but he certainly allowed it to happen, is that we would model and demonstrate before you peace and joy. We love life. We love Jesus. We love one another. And, and we want to demonstrate to you that you can be dying and have great joy. And you can have peace in the midst of all kinds of stuff in your life. And I don't know what your stuff is. I know what mine is. I don't know what yours is, but you can have, you can have this. In fact, in James chapter one, he says, consider it all what? Joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so I get folks that, man, th- their face looks like the frontest piece on the book of Lamentations. I mean, they walk in, man, pastor, it's bad. The world out there is really bad and it's getting worse. Well, let me tell you something. Read the end of the book. It's going to get a lot worse but we have a victorious risen savior who's gonna set it right one day, amen? amen? And so we don't have to walk around in fear and wringing our hands and you can shut the TV off if it gets to you. I mean, you got a remote. You know that thing in your hands a remote. You can use it. Shut it off. Thirdly, God is good even if suffering is not removed. He's good even if suffering is not removed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I wrote an article for Temple Telegram about three weeks ago. If you read it, I use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as an example. I, I love their story. They're, cast into, they're about to be cast into a fiery furnace because they will not bow their knee to other gods. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before Nebuchadnezzar and when he tells them to deny their God. And they say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the blaze of the fiery furnace. But if not, I love those words. But if not, we're still going to serve him and praise him. Habakkuk chapter 3, some of our favorite verses. There are no tree, no olives on the vine, no, no figs on the vine, no olives on the trees, no cattle in the stalls. The flock is scattered, yet I will exalt. I'm going to give praise to God. You know why? Because he's a good God. And finally, spiritual people do suffer. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised by it. Godly people suffer because we live in a world filled with sin and with, with, with hurt and with pain. And so that, that's what happens in our day. Johnny Erickson Tata dove in the Chesapeake Bay when she was 18 years old. She didn't check to see if there were rocks there. She snapped her neck. She's been a quadriplegic ever since. She's written over 40 books to the glory of God. She sits in that wheelchair day after day after day. If you haven't read about her, you need to read about her. She wrote a book on heaven that's phenomenal. She talks about the, the, her legs and her arms and everything she's going to be able to use one day. It's a phenomenal story. She says this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He, he permits sin and suffering to accomplish what he loves. Folks drawn to him, his son, to have eternal life. Bob Benson wrote a book. It's called Speaking the Truth. I'm sorry, See You in the House. And then he talks about his dear friend who had a heart attack. And his friend had a heart attack. And uh, he said, I came to my friend after about two months. And I said, how'd you like your heart attack? He said, it scared me to death, almost. Would you like to do it again? Absolutely not. Would you recommend it? Definitely not. Does your life mean more to you now than it did before? Sure does. You and Nell have always had a beautiful marriage, but you're closer now than ever. We are. How about that new granddaughter? I love her more than ever. I, I, I thought I'd dying and wouldn't see her. Do you have a new compassion for people, a deeper understanding and sympathy? I do. Do you know the Lord in a deeper, richer way than you realized, than you ever realized was possible? Indeed, that's true. Let me ask you again. How'd you like your heart attack? Wow. 
God, I don't want to go through this. But there's no doubt you can use it to your glory. I'm not saying heart attacks are good and killing people is good and don't mishear me. We're not called to be vigilantes. But God can take even the most difficult things and weave them together in the tapestry of our lives to be good. It says very clearly in Romans chapter 8, all things work together. It doesn't say all things are good, but all things work together for good to those that know Christ and are called according to his purposes. Worship team, would you join me up here? And so here's how I want to conclude this morning. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness has found the blood of Christ. Some of you have been through pain and suffering. In that pain and suffering, you have turned your back on Christ. Maybe you haven't turned your back on Maybe you're just mad right now. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you've been blaming him rather than trusting him. I'm going to invite you to come get on your knees right now and get right before him. This is a day of confession and restoration. Some of you need to fear him as judge today because you don't know him as savior today. You need to fear him as judge because you don't know him as savior. I would come get on my knees here and say, Lord Jesus, I accept you and you alone for the forgiveness of sins. I want to be right with you. So maybe it's anger, maybe it's blame, maybe it's indifference. You're not right with him. We're going to sing a song, the Father's arms are open wide, come to the altar. You come get on your knees with me and Bev down here. And we're going to pray for you and with you if you desire to do that. Or maybe you are blessed of God. You haven't taken the time to do that. And this may be a great time for you to take your wife's hand or your husband's hand and walk down here and say, let's just go thank God together, whatever it is, whatever it is. Father, would you, Spirit of God, do a work that only you can do. And we thank you that even in the midst of evil and suffering, we see you as an all-powerful and an all-good God. We worship you this day in Christ's name. Amen.